Well, good morning, everybody. Good morning. Merry Christmas. Happy New Year. It's really good to be with you uh, this morning. If you're new, visiting, uh, kind of checking this out, super excited for you to be here with us. My name is Aaron. I have the privilege of being part of the teaching team here at Wellspring. And uh, for this morning, we're going to be continuing on in a series that we've been going through for most of the fall and into December here called The Unforced Rhythms of Grace. And basically what we're doing with this series is kind of asking this question, what are the habits, practices, and rhythms that we as followers of Jesus should adopt in our lives in order that we might become more and more like Jesus. So what we're going to do for this week and next week is kind of finish this series up. Uh, on January 12th, we're going to begin the book of Corinthians together. We'll be in that book for most of 2020. But for this morning, today, we're going to be looking at the practice of celebration. Celebration. Now, you might, if you're like me, you might be wondering, okay, what in the world does celebration have to do with like the spiritual life? On one level, I think we get intuitively as human beings that we celebrate all sorts of things, right? Like holidays, birthdays, you know, special occasions. You know, I'm hoping this evening to celebrate a Seahawks victory over the 49ers, <laughs> things like that. You know, not, I'm not popular, I know, I get it, but <laughs> whatever. Not trying to make friends and influence people here. We're just <laughs> teaching the Bible. But the point is, is like we get on a human level, right? We, want, we celebrate things. But what does celebration specifically have to talk about ship to Jesus? And why is that important? And why take a whole Sunday to talk about celebration? You know, I think on one hand, I think it's important to recognize that I think this is kind of broadly speaking here. Broadly speaking, I think when the, the world looks at the church and sees the church, I don't think the church necessarily has a reputation of being the most celebratory, the most joyful, like the fun people to hang out with. You know, I think sometimes the world looks at the church and thinks, oh, the church, Christians, they're very serious, they follow rules, they're very religious, and we kind of have like this stoic, very super moral kind of, you know, reputation, right? And there's some good things and bad things with that, but for the most part, I think the world looks at the church kind of like, if you remember the Christopher Nolan Batman movies with Heath Ledger when he played the Joker, which was, I think, one of my favorite acting performances, like, of all time, but Heath Ledger, when he plays the Joker, he has that line where he's like, why so serious? You kind of remember that one spot in the movie? And sometimes I think the world looks at the church kind of like the Joker does with Batman. Why so serious, right? And I think that's why it's one of the reasons we're talking about celebration is because it's actually a huge part of what it means to be an apprentice of Jesus. And it's a huge part of us following Jesus, so what I want to do this morning is just very simply break this talk into th the what parts, the why of celebration, like why is this important, the what of celebration, like what exactly are the biblical components of celebration, and then the how of celebration, asking the question, how might we as followers of Jesus become the kinds of people for whom celebration and joy is just part of our DNA, all right, so that's a very, three, very simple three parts, but let's first start with that first part, the why, the why of celebration. Now, to begin, let's do like a little exercise together, all right? So what I want you guys to do right now is kind of close your eyes, and don't worry, I'm not going to throw anything at you. Just <laughs> close your eyes and bring to your mind's eye, bring to your imagination a picture of Jesus. Like when you think of Jesus... What image comes to your mind? 
Now, you can open your eyes now. Now, for how many of you, raise your hands in a second, how many of you, when you thought of an image of Jesus, how many of you thought of Jesus in some way, shape, or form smiling or laughing? Raise your hands. A few of us. A few of us, but most of us not. And that's okay. I'm not trying to trick or do anything with it. I think for most of us, we don't necessarily think of Jesus as like smiling or laughing. I mean, take for example, I have things like this I want to show you. When I Google like four images of Jesus, things like this pop up, right? It's a very stoic, white Jesus, right? Never mind that Jesus was a Jew who was a refugee who fled to, to Egypt, who grew up as a Middle Eastern man, right? But most kind of modern Western pictures of Jesus look something like this. Kind of serious, very stoic. And he doesn't really seem like the guy who had the reputation of being a glutton and a drunkard, right? Not that he was one, but like he had that reputation in the Gospels. Or whose first miracle was turning water into wine, Right? He was the kind of person that people wanted to be with, and he had all of these sort of celebration feasts with all the wrong kinds of people throughout the four Gospels. And the, my, my point in showing you this image is to kind of, kind of rewire our thinking a little bit. Because when we think about Jesus, we don't often think of him as a celebratory type person. And when we think about celebration and the why of celebration, we want to ask that question, why is this important? Well, it was very important to Jesus. And the thing is, is that Jesus didn't just grow up in a vacuum, or he didn't just come to earth in a vacuum. No, he was steeped in the stories of the Hebrew Bible, what we call the Old Testament. And the Hebrew Bible is chocked full with examples and stories and history of God's people. And that was what Jesus was building off of as he began his earthly ministry 2,000 years ago. Let me just show you a few quick examples just through the Old Testament that Jesus would have had just kind of rolling in the back of his mind as he was living his life on earth. Genesis chapter 1, right? God creates the world, and seven times over, God says it is good. It is good. It is good. And sometimes we read that Genesis 1 account and we think, oh, that's just like a very stoic, you know, it is good. It is good. But no, no, the idea behind that, this is God declaring creation. This is good. This is good. This is good. And there's delight and there's joy within the creator. But I want to focus in on day four of creation because there's something that honestly is very super geeky, but actually I think very helpful when we understand what's going on with day four. Genesis 1 reads this. Day four of creation. Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night. And let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. Now I highlighted that word seasons because that same word in Hebrew gets repeated several times over in the Old Testament, specifically in the Torah, in the book of Leviticus. In a section that describes Israel's sacred feasts. Leviticus 23, if you want to go read that on your own time, you can. Leviticus 23 talks about seven of them. Now Leviticus famous regular rhythmic feast that they were to have as God's people. Now Leviticus 23 says this in the introduction of the chapter. These are the appointed times or the appointed feasts of the Lord. The holy convocations which you shall proclaim at the time appointed for them. Now I'm going to put both verses up on the screen here because I want to really kind of slow down and pause on this for a second. Both 
verses, I think we have a slide that has both verses on the screen. Leviticus 23 in the, in the Genesis 1 passage. The word for seasons and the word for appointed times are the same word in Hebrew. And more often than not in the Hebrew Bible, the word for seasons is moedim, gets translated as these appointed times, referring to Israel's feasts that Israel practices on a, on a regular basis throughout the Hebrew Bible. Now, what's happening with this? What's going on here? What's happening with day four in particular? See, we read day four as moderns, and we think, oh, this is God creating like the seasons, fall, winter, spring, summer, which, sure, God is the creator of all things. God is responsible for all the seasons for sure. But I think that's a classic example of us as modern Westerners reading our modern assumptions back into the text. What's actually going on here in the original context is God feasts that will rhythms of celebration for his people, Israel, with these sacred feasts that will continue to happen throughout Israel's journey throughout the rest of Scripture. These are these signs, these lights in the sky are these appointed times for these seven of these Israel's feasts that are going to happen over and over and over again in the Scripture. The point being is that baked into the rhythm of creation are these moedim, are these regular feasts that Israel is going to have, that God is anticipating these regular rhythms of celebration for his people. Now what's even more interesting is that Israel even had this practice in Deuteronomy 14 of they would tithe 10% of their resources, put it all in one big pool, and then throw a huge party together. I mean, imagine if we just did that today. Took 10% of all our resources, put it in one big pile, and said, let's just have a massive party to celebrate God's goodness and what he's doing in our lives. Like, how awesome would that be, right? Like, the best drink, the best food, just get, like, you know, some amazing live music in here and just have a good time to the glory of God. And we miss this sometimes because Leviticus and Deuteronomy, right? We all skip it in our one-year Bible reading plan, but there's some gems in here, right? Like this is what God is inviting his people to, ancient Israel, to have these regular rhythms of continues throughout the regular rhythms of their daily lives. And now this pattern just continues throughout the Old Testament. Solomon, when he builds the temple, has a massive celebration together with all of Israel. When Israel comes back from exile under the leadership of Nehemiah, there's a huge celebration that takes place there. And as the prophets look forward to the day when God comes back and makes all things new and redeems all of creation, the language that the prophets use is that of celebration language. I think of Isaiah 25. One of my favorite passages in the Old Testament says this. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food. A feast of well-aged wine, rich food full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. This is Isaiah looking forward to the day when God makes all things new and sin and death are wiped away with. And Isaiah uses language of celebration. The best wine, the best food. That celebration, you could put it like this, is part of our eternal destiny. It's what we will be doing in the new creation, celebrating God's goodness with, with good food, with good drink, with being together in the presence of God. But here's the thing. You see, God's people, we're feasting, we're celebrating. But God's also going to be eating, if you will. Follow up on this. Isaiah goes on to say about God that he, God, will swallow up on this mountain 
the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all the nations. What Isaiah is saying is that God's going to swallow up sort of the blindness that we're all suspect to. That the cloud that kind of blurs our vision now, Paul says we see in a dear merely, God's going to eat that up so we're going to be able to see afresh and see clearly once again. Isaiah goes on and says he will swallow up death forever. And the Lord will wipe away tears from all faces. This, by the way, is where John gets his imagery from when he later writes that God's going to wipe away every tear from their eyes. But here is God sort of feasting, swallowing up death, if you will, and death will be no more. Where God's people celebrate again with the, the best food, the best drink, with no more sin, pain, suffering, and death in the new creation. And see, when the angels, and we move into the time of Jesus, when the angels announce the birth of the Savior, they announce it as good news of great joy for all people in Luke 2. That's celebration language. Jesus' first sort of public appearance, his first teaching, if you will, is in Luke chapter 4, and he reads from the scroll of Isaiah in Isaiah 61 and proclaims that this is the year of the Lord's favor. Celebration language, the old miracle in John chapter 2 has come. Jesus, as he performs his first miracle in John chapter 2, I mentioned before, is he's at a wedding party, having a good time, and he turns water into wine. And all throughout Jesus' ministry, he's constantly having these dinner parties, these gatherings with all the wrong kinds of people, at least from the perspective of the religious leaders, the people that are all serious and stoic. But here's Jesus as he announces the good news of God's kingdom. He enacts that good news with these sort of mini celebrations, these mini dinner parties with all these different tax collectors and prostitutes and sinners. Now, my whole point in saying this is to answer that question, why celebration? Well, put very simply, the why of celebration is because it's super biblical. And it's exactly what Jesus was doing all throughout his ministry. Having these little moments of pointing back to the goodness of God and what he was up to in the world. Now, with that, I want to move into the second part here, the what of celebration. What is biblical celebration? If the why is, okay, it's biblical, it's part of the Hebrew Bible, it's what Jesus was up to as he was interacting with people, then what exactly is, though, biblical celebration? I mean, is it just, you know, having the really good food, really good drink with all the cool people, and I mean, the good food part, pick, is that what, you know, celebration is? I mean, that can be a part of it. I mean, the good food part of it can. But what exactly are we talking about when we talk about biblical celebration. Now, I actually want to break this down into just a few more parts and kind of talk about it with these three Ps. The prophetic side of celebration, the pointer that celebration is to be, and then also pain being a part of celebration. It might seem counterintuitive, but I'll explain that in a second. The what of celebration, the prophetic the pointer, and the pain. Now, sometimes biblical celebration will have one of these components. Sometimes there'll be more than one, and oftentimes they'll overlap. But let me start with the prophetic side of celebration. What do I mean by biblical celebration being prophetic? Well, what I mean by that is that, first off, I think we would all agree that we live in a culture that is kind of just so ramped up with cynicism and outrage and sort of kind of full of angst, right? 
especially in sort of our American political climate where there's so many just people just angry at each other. They're just at each other's throats. There's all this division and this polarization. There's this kind of low-grade angst or bitterness just kind of running rampant through our culture right now. And what, it, what this tends to do for us as a special world or get us to be so focused on all the things that are wrong in the world or all the things that need to get fixed in the world. And for sure, there is a lot of brokenness in this world, right? But biblical celebration is this prophetic witness saying, you know what? There actually is a lot of good in the world. There's a lot of things that are good and true and beautiful and that we can fix our eyes and attention and celebrate the good things God has given us to enjoy in this world, even though this world, as Jonathan Haidt says, is a culture of outrage. Where there's people just so full of angst and anger, biblical celebration becomes this prophetic witness to say, you know what? I'm not going to necessarily dwell on all of the things that are wrong with our world in this given moment. But I have the privilege to celebrate the gifts God has given us to enjoy. You know, that's why the legendary Bono said, joy in celebration is the ultimate act of defiance. Meaning it's pushing against sort of the grain of cynicism, of outrage, of angst that can be so prevalent in our modern day. But on another level, I would say biblical celebration is prophetic in a different way. In that normally as the world often gathers to celebrate and to be together, that there's often this sort of the people that lead that, you know what, as we celebrate, we're just going to hang out with just all the cool people, Right? The people that look like us, that agree with us, that voted for the same people that we voted for, that agree with us on every sort of cultural issue. But biblical celebration pushes against that too and says all are welcome. All are welcome to the kingdom party. Jesus in Luke 14 says this. Now, this is forewarning probably, at least for me, just a super challenging passage. It's kind of in your face and kind of, punches you in the gut if you really take seriously what Jesus says. Jesus in Luke 14 says this. When you give a feast or celebration, do not invite your friends, your brothers, your sisters, your relatives, or your rich neighbors. If you do, they might invite you back so you will be repaid. But when you give a banquet or a celebration, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Notice a couple things. First, Jesus says when. When you throw a celebration, when you throw a feast. It's almost as if Jesus is just assuming that his apprentices are going to celebrate or throw celebrations. And notice secondly, Jesus says don't just invite the cool people, the people that are fun to hang out with. Are all welcome on the margins. Invite those on the outside because they are all welcome in the kingdom of God. In our culture that is so just built on tribalism and just hanging out with our own in-groups and only being in sort of like an echo chamber of just hearing and listening to whatever someone agrees with, that making sure that I agree with them and those are the only people I'm going to spend my time with, biblical celebration is a prophetic witness saying no. That's not what the kingdom is about. The kingdom is not just about just the cool people all being together or the people that are like me all being together, but open arms welcoming anyone and everyone to the kingdom party. That all are welcome 
at Jesus' table. And this leads me to that third P, or the second P, of celebration being a pointer. As followers of Jesus, when we celebrate, it's not just about having a good time and just filling ourselves with all the pleasure in the world. There's a place for that. I'm going to talk about that in a second. But biblical celebration is a pointer ultimately back to God himself. That God is our savior and our redeemer and that we have so much to be thankful for and celebrate because of what he has done in our lives. I think of the story in Luke 15 where Jesus tells the parable of the prodigal son. Where the younger son finally comes back back to his senses comes back to the father, and what does he do? He throws this massive celebration for the younger son. But the older son, what's he doing? I mean, he's angry, he's bitter, he's that, you know, he's the typical angry person who's sort of cynical. But the father responds and says, you know what? We had to celebrate. Specifically, this is what the father says. We had to celebrate and be glad. Because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and now he's found. And for us as followers of Jesus, this is our story. Ephesians 2 says we were once dead in our trespasses and sin. That we were once lost and now that we have been found. So as we celebrate God's goodness, it's ultimately a pointer back to him. It actually becomes a means of worship. Throwing these dinner parties and celebrating together with friends and family is a way we actually worship God, recognizing that he is our redeemer and our savior. And that every good and perfect gift in the language of James 1 comes from God. Therefore, when we see and recognize and enjoy the good gifts God has given us, we don't necessarily have to feel shame or guilt about those things. Because those are good gifts from God that are meant to be a pointer back to him. Sometimes I think in the church we have this kind of warped kind of view of possessions and pleasure the world does. Oh, pleasure and enjoyment, that's something that's, you know, carnal or secular, and that's what the world does. We as good religious people, we're just supposed to sing songs and pray and read our Bibles. And there's a place for that, for sure. But as followers of Jesus, God has given us good things to enjoy, to celebrate. And that's part of our worship to God. And that pleasure and enjoyment and the gift of life and the goodness of this world are God's gifts to us for us to enjoy and for us to worship and thank him for. C.S. Lewis, he writes in the Screwtape Letters. Screwtape Letters is this kind of really interesting little book where it's an older demon talking to a younger demon, trying to get the younger demon to be trained in the ways of tempting and getting followers of Jesus to get off the path of actually following Jesus. And in one moment in the screw tape letters, the older demon tells the younger demon kind of some tips as to how to get people leading astray. And he says this, Never forget that when we are dealing with any pleasure in its healthy and normal and satisfying form, we are, in a sense, on the enemy's ground. Now remember, this is written from the perspective of sort of like a young, older demon to a younger demon. So the enemy is like Jesus in this sort of narrative. I know we have won many a soul. All the same, it is his invention, not ours. You see what C.S. Lewis is trying to communicate there? That pleasure and enjoyment and celebration and laughter and the goodness of this world is not something that's the enemies or the world's, but it's a gift from God. 
to enjoy. For sure, we can warp that, we can abuse that, we can mistreat that, and then it becomes sin and it becomes damaging, for sure. But in its right and good form, it becomes a pointer back to God. It's a moment to celebrate the goodness of God in a broken world. Which leads me to that final P, pain. Pain. Now what I mean by this is that biblical celebration isn't like this excuse to have this trite, like, you know what, everything's okay. Be happy. Put a smile on. Celebrate. No, biblical celebration recognizes that there is pain in this world. And it doesn't gloss over or ignore the pain. Sometimes I think when we we think of celebration, we think, oh, that's a way to escape the pain. No, biblical celebration recognizes there is pain in this world, yet at the same time, pain does not get the final word. You know, Jesus is described by the prophet Isaiah as one that would be dressed with the oil of gladness instead of mourning. Those acquainted with but Isaiah also said in Isaiah 53 that Jesus would be a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Gladness and grief go together. Paul, Paul put it like this in 2 Corinthians, that he, was, he is sorrowful yet always rejoicing. Sorrowful and rejoicing. Those two aren't opposites. They go together. You know, for my own life, this is something that has been a huge struggle for me because I kind of have this personality where, you know, if I'm not in the mood for it or if something isn't right, I don't like faking it. Like I try to be as real, like for better or for worse, just be as real as possible. And there is a huge season in our life as a family from about 2014 to really just about 2018 or so where in a span of about four years, I lost the job at the church I grew up in. We lost our son who was born at 23 weeks, stillborn. We moved six times, not because we were in the military, but because we had no idea what we were supposed to do. We started a church and then had to close it about a year and a half later. And in that period of time, I remember several occasions. I just even think as we were singing that song, you are good, you are good, you are good, the king of my heart song we were singing this morning. And several times, like just getting up and walking out. Like I can't sing these words, you are good. So in authenticity, B, with all the circumstances going on in our lives, you are good, you are good. It just felt like so inauthentic. And just not lining up with the reality of what I thought my life was supposed to be about. And I share that, and I say that because when I'm talking about biblical celebration, I'm not talking about ignoring the pain and the hurt and the difficulty of life. Actually, biblical celebration can be this moment of honesty. It can be this moment of vulnerability and saying, you know what, God? I want to celebrate but it's hard. Like deep down, I, I, I want that. I know it to be true at an intellectual level, but I actually want to experience your goodness. Not just say it as a word or a phrase in a song. You know, and, and again, it's, it's a hard journey to go through. And this is where I've talked about this before. Just having the space for honesty in the church and having the space for letting people be where they're at to journey on the journey that God has them journeying on. And like I kind of said a few weeks ago about prayer, maybe for you it's celebrate what you can and not what you can't. And what are the things that you can celebrate even in a, a season of difficulty or dryness? 
What are maybe those one or two things that you can give thanks to God for? In a direct, and maybe that can be maybe a small little sort of baby step in a direction of joy, in, in direction of joy and gladness. Now, all that to say, the prophetic, the pointer, the pain, again, all of these things kind of overlap and intertwine together. This is sort of answering that question, what is biblical celebration? Sometimes you might have one of these or two of these or a combination. But I think this sort of encapsulates what I think the biblical vision of celebration is sort of all about on sort of a theological level. Now, I want to kind of show us a little chart here that kind of compares worldly celebration with kingdom celebration together. And I want to kind of highlight a few things here. See, on one level, the world talks, when we talk about pain, worldly celebration is often about numbing or ignoring the pain. But again, like I just mentioned, kingdom celebration recognizes pain. You know, when we talk about food and drink, it's often within the world about abusing that just for your own hedonistic self-satisfaction. But as followers of Jesus, we recognize that these things are a gift from God. You know, biblical celebration, again, we, we think about it as not just about hanging out with the cool people, but all are welcome to the kingdom party. Worldly celebration often is trying to run from God, but biblical celebration, on contrary, that God is the giver about worshiping God, coming back to him, recognizing that, that pointer aspect, that God is the giver of all good things. Oftentimes, maybe you've experienced this, worldly celebration can lead to some sort of regret. But biblical celebration, the practice of biblical celebration, is a way to foster joy in one's life. Which leads me to then the last sort of final part of this teaching, the how of celebration. How do we become the kinds of people and how do we practice this in such a way where we become the kinds of people for whom celebration and joy is just part of our DNA? Now very simply, I just want to talk about three small little things here. Simple celebration, strategic celebration, and then finally spontaneous celebration. Simple, strategic, spontaneous. You can tell I'm on like an alliteration kick, so <laughs> deal with it, <laughs> kind of a thing. But simple celebration. What, what do I mean by this? What I mean is that as followers of Jesus, celebration does not have to be this overly complex sort of thing. It doesn't have to be about like, you know, planning the, this massive party for people and all this stress and all of this work. Biblical celebration, again, can be about recognizing that God is the giver of every good and perfect gift, both big and small, and recognizing the small things in fullness, these moments, moments one author calls of these micro-celebrations, these moments of thankfulness, these moments of gratitude. John Ortberg, he's a pastor up in the Bay Area, writes this, when we celebrate, we exercise our ability to see and feel goodness in the simplest gifts of God. We are able to take delight today in something we wouldn't have even noticed yesterday. Our capacity then for joy begins to increase. What he's saying there is that we have to be able to pay attention to what we're paying attention to. Like where is our attention at? Where are we thinking? Where are we looking at? What are we focusing on? And it's sometimes it's just those very simple things. Whether it's a walk with a friend or a walk on the beach or a small meal together that can become these very simple moments of gratitude that can then lead into more and more celebration in your life. 
You know, for us as a family, you know, we try to practice this by just recognizing just the small moments to be thankful for in each sort of day. I think a lot of celebration, this talk of celebration, actually begins with the practice of gratitude. And just cultivating a simple practice, a regular routine of gratitude, then leads into more and more celebration. I know for us as a family, one of the things that I find so much delight in is seeing our little kid all night and then turn each morning. We have this little, it's like this magic clock that is red all night and then turns green at 7.15. And then they know they can come out. And then it's like the chaos monsters have been released kind of a thing. But and when the light turns green, Kaysen, my youngest, he's two, comes out of the room. And he's like, he does his little toddler stomp. And he, he says this almost every morning. He goes, here comes the Kaysen man. And he just bursts out of the room and... You know, he's two and he's talking in the third person, so we have that to, to worry about. But it's just this small little moment of joy to begin my day. And he runs up to me and I give him a big hug. And it's, it's not like a, a major feast or anything like that, but it's a small moment to celebrate and delight in. What are those three to four things in, a, in a given, any given day that you can celebrate and take delight in this week? Maybe spend some time thinking about the, the, your regular routine. What are three or four things that you can celebrate and thank God for? Very simple things. Maybe it's, you know, for me, I love biking on the, on the rec trail here. It's just a beautiful opportunity to just be outside and to be in God's creation. You know, we have our Tuesday Well community. One of my favorite nights each week where we just gather together, share a meal together. We're at life with one, with one another and just simply be together. What are those regular things, those simple things in your life that you can celebrate and thank God for? Which leads me to then the second part, the strategic side of celebration, meaning this. This is just simply the idea of being intentional about some of the things that you are already celebrating. Like, like I said at the beginning, we already celebrate things like birthdays and holidays and special occasions. I'm not saying, okay, now go add a bunch of things to your already over-busy schedule, but what are the things you already celebrate that maybe you can infuse a little bit more, like, Jesus meaning, if you will, into them? You know, one of the things I learned this from Tony is when we, like, when we do birthdays with friends, one of the things that he likes to do is he'll have us all go around the room and say one thing that we appreciate about that person on their birthday. I just find that as, like, a very simple thing. But it's, it's being intentional, it's being strategic about the things that you are already celebrating to make it more about, not just about the consumerism of our culture, like getting more stuff or just kind of filling our lives to be just about us and what we want, but ways to just simply acknowledge the goodness in everyday moments. How might you infuse a little more strategy, if you will, in some of those everyday things? One of the things that we do as a family Monday through Thursday. A week, we have oatmeal for breakfast. Monday through, or so, like basically Monday through Thursday is just oatmeal all week. And it's kind of, you know, bland and boring or whatever, but we, you know, try to put raisins and whatever to make it, you know, bearable. But, <laughs> but on the weekends, on the weekends, we have like these sort of like mini celebrations, if you will. We have on Friday mornings, we have egg burritos with tater tots from Trader Joe's in them. And then on Saturday mornings is pumpkin pancakes from Trader Joe's. And it's like 
we, we look forward to those things. It's like a regular thing, right? We all have breakfast. Hopefully you do. But, like, what are some ways to maybe just infuse a little more intentionality in those everyday moments where they can become, like, these moments of thankfulness and gratefulness where we as a family now can be together and look forward to the egg burritos on Friday morning and enjoy each other's company together. Which all of this finally leads to this idea of spontaneous celebration. That as we begin to build rhythms of simple and strategic celebration, hopefully this begins to overflow and just, you know what? God, you are so good. You are so good to me. And I just want to celebrate. Whether it's having some friends over or going out for, you know, some food or drink. Just enjoying one another, being in the company of other people who love Jesus. Or maybe you don't even know who Jesus is and the burdens of everyone. And just kind of being free from like schedules and to-do lists and the burdens of everyday life. And saying, God, you are God. I am not. And I just want to enjoy being with your people, your creation, and with one another. And so I think we're invited to, as followers of Jesus, to have a little bit of freedom here. That celebration doesn't have to be this rigid sort of thing. This is exactly how it looks like. But biblical celebration can be this free-flowing, spontaneous sort of thing. How has God wired you? How has God gifted you? How has God sort of built you to celebrate the goodness of life and the goodness of him in this world? And so maybe the question for you this week is just very simply this. Where is the spirit inviting you to celebrate? Where is God inviting you to celebrate this week? You know, we have obviously New Year's approaching. What might it look like, something that you are already going to celebrate, I'm sure, at some level? What might it look like to maybe infuse just a little bit of Jesus' meaning into the new year? Whether you just spend some time with your family thanking God what he's done over the past year, or maybe it's with anticipation and hope together as a family or with friends, talking about, God, these are the, the dreams and the hopes that I have for the new year. And just being a little more intentional with some of those things. Build and let this, over the top, it can be very simple. But allow some of those things to then build and let the spirit work in us. To then it becomes this overflowing response, the goodness of God in our lives. You know, because friends, we have so much to celebrate as followers of Jesus. That God has done so much for us. This is exactly what we've talked about over this Advent Christmas season. God has come to us in our brokenness of this world and in our lives. And in the midst of the pain and the difficulty, we can both be sorrowful yet always rejoicing. And to see God meets us in our weakness, he meets us in our pain and invites us to respond in celebration and in worship. Not ignoring the pain, but recognizing that he, yes, is the giver of every good and perfect gift. I want to invite the worship team to come up. And what we're going to do over these next few minutes is have a moment of response. And recognizing and, and declaring that, yes, Jesus, you are Lord. You are king over our lives. And recognizing who God is and what he's done for us. And maybe over these next few songs, maybe just very practically and very simply, it's just asking the question and thinking about, what are three or four things that might be sort of mulling in your head right now? They can be maybe difficult things. 
joyous things, somewhere in between. But how might you bring those before God in worship and in prayer and say, God, I want to recognize and celebrate your goodness both in the difficulty and in the good, both in the sorrow and in the joy. Because God is present in both. He wants to be near to you this morning. Let's stand and pray together. God, you are you are here with us. And God, help us just to maybe just recognize and just be a little more aware, God, that you are present right now in our midst. And I ask for just those who may be going through some difficulty this morning, those who may be feeling a little bit of the sorrow of this world, God, that you would just be present with them today. And maybe for those who have reason to celebrate and rejoice and it's just very easy or it comes naturally to to them. God, I pray, Lord, that you would encourage them, you would build them up. That can you in this place and in this church would just help us to be a people that can celebrate the goodness of who you are and that we would welcome those, anyone, to the table. We love you, we thank you, we pray these things in your name. Amen.